Hello, welcome to Akira Kensu Podcast. Today I'll be interviewing Dr. Mike T. Nelson, and we'll be discussing the science and application of heart rate variability. Dr. Nelson is a speaker at this year's International Symposium in Clinical Neuroscience. To learn more, please visit karakinstitute.com. Hello, uh, Dr. Nelson. Mike, are you there? I am. How are you today, sir? I'm doing really good, Mike. I'm glad to, glad to have you on the show, man. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on here. This is awesome. Right. Sweet. Hey, listen, so, Mike, uh, I'm, I'm really happy to interview you because... Um, kind of like our last guest, I've known you for a long time and I've seen you grow and evolve uh, over your career, but some of our uh, listeners may have not met you yet. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, what about your background? What's uh, education-wise? What, wh- where have you been? Yeah, so education, done a whole bunch of it, like most people on the program and like yourself. I did a Bachelor of Arts in Natural Science as my undergrad. And then I actually went off and did two years of postgraduate stuff and then did a master's in mechanical engineering, kind of biomechanics, biomed type stuff. So I finished that and I thought, eh, I'm never going back to school again. That lasted about two years. I was working for a medical device company, doing some cardiology stuff for a while in between. I actually did about four years in the PhD program in biomedical engineering at the University of Minnesota. Decided I didn't want to do that the rest of my life and then left, went down the road to exercise physiology and did that for about seven years actually to get my PhD in that. Right. So you actually, when did you get your PhD? I remember when you're going through that process, it was uh, arduous. Oh, it was pretty horrible (laughs) to be honest. (laughs) Uh, They they don't make it easy on, on purpose, I'm pretty sure. Otherwise, everybody would be doctor something, right? Yeah, it was, uh, no one wants to hear all the details, but yeah, it was, uh, experiments didn't work out right, you know, which sometimes they don't. And then, um, yeah, the short version is I had to do, uh, three full studies to be submitted for peer review. And I had basically three of those that didn't really work out and by not work out, meaning we didn't really find a positive result, which I would argue what you find is still a result, but yeah, I mean, to in me, it's of, like, a, you may not have found what you expected to find, but you still found right. something, which to me is still valid research. It's a, Right. The, the catchy part was, though, it had to be uh, published. So a lot of times negative results don't necessarily get published that much. Well, um, gosh, but that's, a, that's a little irritating. I mean, I got to tell you, I mean, extremely I, irritating. <laughs> I would, I would <laughs> gladly pay somebody to tell me what not to do uh, oh, with yeah. a patient or in business or in any aspect of my life, not just tell me what to do. So, God, it seems a little flawed, doesn't it? Oh, it's, I'd say it's more than flawed. But um, the, the good part was the main study that I set up, um, I knew that either way it would be published because that one I had enough control over to make it novel enough. So if the result turned out negative, it was still novel enough, would be published. If it turned out positive, still novel enough that it would be published. Um, the sub-studies with that one didn't turn out quite as well as I had hoped, just due to some... The short version is I got the craziest uh, standard deviation of subjects for response to blood flow that basically were on both ends of the normal spectrum. And because of that, I didn't have enough subjects to create enough power to show if there was or was not a difference. So that was one of the other issues, too, that... Yeah, I just didn't expect. So a whole bunch of fun stuff. But you're, you're a warrior. You completed your PhD. And your PhD, ultimately, what was uh, what was it in? 
Yeah, it was from the Department of Kinesiology, and it was in exercise physiology. Okay, awesome. Well, I mean, this, this explains uh, why we're going to be talking a lot about HRV today, right? It's probably yeah. it's right in your wheelhouse, right in your domain. So we, uh, I figured I brought the right expert on. Hey, so you've done research. Can you tell us a little bit about the research you've done and uh, some of your publications? Because I know you're, you're actually featured in some books, which are uh, very interesting to me, because I think you're in one that's uh, a great, a very popular one about protein, right? I yep. That so I was in. Um, yeah, I helped write a chapter in a book on dietary protein and resistance exercise. Um, still one of the main uh, academic textbooks on that topic through CRC Press. Um, did another book uh, chapter on dietary fat. Uh, that was a book on supplements. And then, uh, as part of my master's, I actually published uh, research in engineering. So in the I Triple Transactions Journal. So that was actually looking at basically skin heating effects of millimeter wave induced thermal modeling. So if you translate that into English, that means we, me, <laughs> ran a computer generated model of a monkey head sitting in front of a very large microwave transmitter. But the microwave transmitter was in the gigahertz range. So super high frequency, so very, very shallow uh, skin penetration depth. So the Military at the time, it was so classified, they didn't tell me it was classified. <laughs> they just said, oh, this is for collision avoidance systems on cars. I'm like, okay, why does Brooks Air Force Base in Texas care about this? But, yeah, they funded me and gave me some money for two years to do that. So what they wanted to make was a military calls it a ray gun. So you literally point this thing in a crowd of people, and because it hits the basically the nerve endings on your skin, which are very sensitive, it causes them to disperse um, out of the way, which is kind of interesting. Um, yeah. So, a little, little intense there, but all right, cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So did that. Um, did some other stuff on reliability of heart rate variability by sample entropy. That was an abstract. Awesome. We're, we're actually going to dive into that. I have that in my notes of some things that I, I have some questions about it. So yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. We'll jump into that. Did, yep. Did a couple. Um, did two on that one. Uh, the main study I did was looking at cardiovascular and ride time to exhaustion effects of an energy drink. So we had people exercise to volitional fatigue, which means run as hard as you can. Uh, in this case, they were actually biking. Measured a bunch of different parameters, including HRV, resting heart rate, a whole bunch of other stuff. And then also did one on repeatability of respiratory exchange ratio using a time series analysis. So if you translate that one into English, when we get into talking about heart rate variability, we'll talk about something called fine scale variability. So we took that same concept and we applied it to the metabolic domain. So looking at fuel usage and if how that changes just a little bit, even though you're at steady state. So can we apply a bunch of fancy math to that? Can we extract any information? And is that type of measurement um, even repeatable, right? So the first step is if the measurement you do is not repeatable, meaning you control everything you can, run the same thing, in this case, three times. And if those results are pretty variable, now what you're trying to measure isn't going to be stable enough to give you any useful info. Um, and luckily, in this case, it, it was stable. So that is, at least on that study, a valid measurement system. <laughs> wow. All right, sweet. And, Bunch of geeky uh, stuff. Yeah, seriously. I was like, <laughs> I'm, I'm nerding out here. Um, and you've done some special projects, though, too, right? I mean, aren't there some organizations that they brought you in to talk about uh, 
different stuff. I don't know what you can or can't say, but uh, can you share about it, about that? Yeah, so one of the ones I did several years ago was actually for DARPA. So which is, what is the what is DARPA? Yeah, it's the Defense Advanced Resource Project Agency. So if you've got like a GPS in your phone, uh, the internet, if you go way back in time for all the youngins, it used to be called the ARPANET. So basically, if you look at pretty much a lot of the major technology advances that we have now, there's a good chance that a lot of that was actually funded by DARPA. So DARPA is an independent agency, per se, and what they do is they leverage all uh, private research, but they're funded by the Defense Department. Basically, the Defense Department gives them a whole bunch of money, and they try to solve what they call sort of unsolvable questions. So stuff that's very advanced, a lot of it doesn't work out, um, but the stuff that they do come up with um, is pretty interesting. So I was there talking about how to use a concept of metabolic flexibility for training of soldiers under different types of conditions. So trying to see, can we take their physiology and train it in a better way to handle, you know, sort of the extremes that they're going to be in and maybe they can get by with, you know, having less food, less support, um, things of that nature, but making sure we train these very specific aspects of their metabolism first to make sure that when they are deployed and in those situations, they can still perform. Wow. All right. That's, that's, that's impressive. I mean, uh, I mean, geez, I, I mean, I'm almost a little speechless because you don't meet to, you don't get to meet that many people who uh, work with such organizations. I mean, it uh, sounds really yeah, incredible. That, that was a, one of the craziest things because you're sitting in this room and oh, I felt like the dumbest person in there. <laughs> Which, it's like, holy crap, these people are insane. And it was, it was very cool that they force you to you know, answer questions that they're looking at for, from five to ten years out. You know, so stuff that is literally was science fiction in the past, they're looking at and have historically figured out ways to make it real, which is pretty crazy. I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, it sounds so impressive when you're like, yeah, you know, work with an organization that tries to solve the unsolvable. You know? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, wow. So, again, congratulations on everything you've accomplished. But, oh, thank you. Uh, hey, so we brought you on the show uh, this time because we're going to talk about a specific topic. We're going to talk about HRV. Mm -hmm. right? I know this is an area that you're very knowledgeable in, and I've actually seen it used in healthcare, and I've seen it used yes. in performance aspects as well, in uh, athletic training. Um, but, I, you know what? I, that's as much as I know about it. I don't know if I should be uh, looking at it in my patients or not. So I figured we can kind of talk about it. What is HRV? What's it even stand for? Can you can you fill us in? Yeah, no problem. So HRV stands for heart rate variability. And the variability we're talking about here is very, very small scale, right? So a, a macro variability would be, eh, I'm at rest, you know, my heart rate's, you know, 50 to 60, maybe 70. I go exercise, maybe I get to 140, 150, 160 or higher. That would be a macro variation. So the, mm -hmm. that is variation. So HRV is looking at the variability at rest and very, very small changes. So if we go back just a long, long period in time, we used to believe that if you were at rest and you're at steady state, so nothing else is going on, your heart rate would be extremely repeatable. So if we measured you at 70 beats a minute, you should be 70 beats a minute, 70 beats a minute, 70 beats a minute, almost like you set a metronome. Mm -hmm. But what they figured out is that that is not a good thing. If that happens, you've got a whole bunch of issues. 
So what we see in a healthy individual is this variability. So it's maybe 69.5, 71.2, 70.3, 68.7. So it'll very, very small changes. Yep. It'll kind of oscillate around this average. Mm-hmm. And when we look at that and we apply a bunch of fancy math, we can do what's called a variability analysis. So the key with variability analysis is it depends upon the data next to each other, right? So if you imagine if I had a whole string of numbers here and I run the average and I take all the numbers and I mix them up and I run the average again, I'll get the same average, right? It doesn't matter what order the numbers are in. But if I run a variability analysis, the order of the numbers matters because that's related to the variability. So the higher, within reason, the fine-scale variability, the better and more healthy the system is. So that's actually looking at the autonomic nervous system, which, as most of your listeners know, has two branches, the parasympathetic, which is like the brake on your car. So as that branch increases output, sometimes called vagal tone, Mm -hmm. you slow down the system, just like pushing harder on the brake of your car, the car slows down. Now, the other branch of the autonomic nervous system is a sympathetic system, which is like the gas pedal on your car. Mm-hmm. You push down on it harder. In general, everything goes faster. So HRV tells us the status of how much parasympathetic and how much sympathetic nervous system is active at that time. Now, uh, so we talk about those subsystems uh, individually, right? Parasympathetic, mm-hmm. parasympathetic, sympathetic, and yet a, a beautiful analogy, the gas pedal or the brake pedal. But so you get this one number, right? You get this piece of data in HRV, but those, and it's but it's combining those two subsystems, right? So it's really it's one number to really give you analysis of both systems. Is that accurate? What I'm saying there? Yep, and in general that is correct. So the main measurement system to do is what's called the time domain measurement. So if we back up, there's actually three different ways you can measure it. So we can look in what's called the time domain. We can look at what's called the frequency domain, or we can look at some nonlinear measures. And there's a whole bunch of research spread across a whole bunch of stuff. But if you simplify it, the most research, at least for status of the autonomic nervous system, is on the time domain. And when you run that specific type of analysis, which you don't need to know the details about it, you are correct that you get one number. So the commercial systems that are available now will use an equation and translate that into usually a 1 to 100 scale. So when you're looking at the number that you get, if you're at, say, 85, the higher the number means there's more fine-scale variability and more parasympathetic output. So your nervous system is operating more on the, the rest and digest branch. As the number decreases, you actually start losing fine-scale variability and you become more sympathetic. You actually have a withdrawal of vagal tone. And that means, in essence, that you are becoming more stressed. So if your number was, let's say, 64, and it dropped from 80, that's showing that your autonomic nervous system is seeing more stress at that point in time. So hold on. So which one's better, lower or higher? In general, the higher the number, the more parasympathetic is better because the numbers can be measured at rest. When you go and do exercise, you actually lose fine scale variability because the sympathetic system is going to be primarily overriding, especially when you get above a rate of 100. Um, So measurements during exercise are just pretty much worthless. 
Got it. All right. So, all right, this is coming together for me. So I'm really glad you're on and breaking this down because I'm, I'm, I'm assuming a lot of people may be in the same boat as me. But, uh, you know, when it comes to HRV, one of the reasons I haven't really assertively looked into it is because whenever I did, some of the research would be, and, and I recognize, you know, you could look up any, you know, diagnostic aspect or even treatment aspect, you'll find some research that supports it and some research that doesn't. But when it came to HRV, I really couldn't get a clear consensus on whether this number mattered. And I, yeah, you know, so what is the science currently saying on whether HRV is a, is a valid data point for my athletes or patients even? Yeah, the research currently, if you look at it as a whole, is extremely messy. Uh, there's a couple reasons for that. My bias is one of the reasons, especially recently, is it's become very easy to measure HRV. So especially with equipment, uh, lab equipment's been out for quite a while in order to do it, but especially in this past couple of years, substantially dropped in price. And most people sitting around are going, huh, all right, we got this person, we did something to them. Hmm, they're sitting at rest. Oh, hey, this HRV thingy, this will tell us something about stress. Uh, they're already sitting at rest anyway, so ah, we'll just add it to this thing and we'll we'll figure it out later. <laughs> so in my biased opinion, a lot of it just kind of gets added on to research that probably didn't ask the right questions to begin with. And the good and the bad part about HRV is any type of stress will alter it. So if you're running one measurement in the lab only, you have to be very careful to make that as standardized as possible. So usually overnight fasting, dietary recall, making sure they haven't had caffeine within a certain amount, no alcohol, drinking water even before the test will significantly alter the measurement. So you have to do a fair amount of things to make sure that is more robust, especially if you're only doing just a couple measurements. Um, if you're doing more measurements at home, yeah. You got a little bit more leeway. Obviously, you still want to control that as tight as possible. It also depends on what questions you're looking to answer. In general, if you're running a time domain analysis, you can really only answer, did the patient become more parasympathetic or sympathetic, or the subject if it's a research study. Um, from there requires kind of some extrapolation. Um, and then also, before you even run that, you have to know, is the measurement reliable under the conditions that you're measuring it in, right? So, for example, if someone's doing the measurement different, maybe, you know, the old kind of white coat syndrome, maybe the person doesn't like someone who runs and does a study, or you're going to do something very painful to them afterwards, and you just got done explaining to them why you're going to do this painful maybe muscle biopsy, Oh, shit, why did they become Fine. more stressful? Oh, 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 I don't know what's going on now, right? So you have to be really careful with the context in which that you measure it. And then the last thing, too, is that to get pretty reliable changes, um, especially looking at training studies. So if you say, let's going to do a strength training study, you're going to do a cardiovascular study, we're going to run the study for 12 weeks, you really need to have almost daily HRV. You can't really run one at the beginning, run a single measurement at the end and go, oh, oh, what happened here? Right? Well, why daily? You need, right. You need to know how it changes per individual because it's very different on an individual basis. So, for example, like one of the studies I did was looking at an energy drink. And at the time, it was not really possible to do at-home measurements. 
So what we did is we tried to make sure everything <clears throat> was at rest. There's a whole bunch of things about water, caffeine intake, sleep, dietary recall, all this kind of stuff. And then we did comparing an intervention, so randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled. And we were comparing the two HRV points, but you can only compare them within each individual. And that's what's kind of hard. You can't necessarily sum all of it up because it's a variability analysis. It's not necessarily the same as an average. And what you find is if you just take people off of the street and you start grabbing HRV numbers, you do all the cool stuff to make sure that it's as repeatable as possible. And let's say you use a 1 to 100 scale. People who are healthy may range from 60 to I've seen up in the 90s. So very wide range from across just normal individuals. So you really have to know where they are on sort of a, a running timeline to make it useful. And then you can see changes in that over time because you're doing a, a sample test sort of each day. And what you find then is sort of the person's lifestyle will kind of wash out from it. Right, so let's say you've got a person who maybe only sleeps seven hours a night, doesn't do the best nutrition stuff. Maybe you're running like a 12-week study. You'll know, hopefully, before you do the intervention, a nice baseline of where they're at, and then you'll look at the intervention and see if it changed. So their lifestyle, hoping that it's a constant throughout that study, isn't as much of a factor then. But if you just grabbed one measurement mm -hmm. and then did a long-term intervention and just randomly grab another measurement later, well, maybe they had a bad day, maybe they were stressed out, who knows, right? It's very hard to determine what you were doing there over the long term if it was uh, different or not. Um, not quite the same as if you came in and we give you like a bunch of caffeine or something that we know we're going to see an acute change from. Right, so I guess you're saying that's that uh, depending on how everything's measured and, and the frequency of it, that snapshot in time may give us some bad data because it's only a snapshot in time. Yep, and that's the downside of pretty much all data. Well, <laughs> right? I mean, you know, this is what's, what's making me think is, uh, you know, we have a lot of doctors uh, of various types and mm -hmm. some doctors are into, you know, pharmaceuticals, some into uh, clinical nutrition and neurochemistry and they're really dependent on lab chemistries. But again, a lab right. chemistry, its fault is that it's that snapshot in time. So yep. you try to make conclusions off of it, but sometimes you don't have a way to reassess quickly enough. So if your reassessment, uh, other than subjective, which sometimes is effective or not, is three months from now, uh, you could be doing subjective assessments and uh, may, that may be good or bad data, but you could go three months down the road and achieve nothing or maybe make a person worse. So, which makes me come back to something like HRV. If I could measure an aspect of somebody's physiology and get some data from it and find out, you know, better, worse, or the same, is this where HRV fits into healthcare or uh, even potential um, athletic development type aspects? Is this how people are using it? Because that, that's where I hear a lot of it. I mean, those two things right there where HRV creeps into my world, right? about yep. people being like, all right, can I be can I be more incredible today? Or people who are like, hey, I, I, I need I'm looking for small changes in my patient population because I don't want to wait three months to find out if the person's better. Um, yeah. Is that fair to use it that way? I think it is. And I think that's the pro of HRV is once you have the measurement system, the person can do it at home. There really isn't any other additional cost to running it. 
takes them about three to maybe five minutes at the very most to do the measurement. If they did not do a measurement, you know right away. Um, if they did it at a different oddball time, you can just look at the data and see that they you know, did it at some goofball time. Um, so I think it's extremely useful from that point. Right? So if we, you know, there's definitely a point for, for lab testing for sure, but I have a lot of people in kind of the training world who get just crazy around measuring cortisol levels, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But the reality is they're probably only going to do one, one maybe every couple months or something like that. Mm-hmm. To me, just take that money and just spend it on HRV and have a daily number that's you know indicating something a little bit different. But at the end of the day, it's still indicating a marker of stress on your nervous system. And to me, that's much more useful. The, the maddening part of HRV is, like I said, any lifestyle change can alter the measurement, right? And everybody kind of intuitively knows this. So if you, you know, sleep five hours last night and for the next four nights in a row, obviously your system's going to be experiencing more stress. So that'll show up in your number. Maybe you decide to do a crazy training session and take two scoops of pre-workout before you go and, you know, do heavy squats or whatever. It's probably going to show up in your number two. Now, if you had crappy sleep the night before, can I tell you which one of those was the greater thing? Probably not. Um, Now, I can compare that to the day before, assuming everything else is similar, maybe, maybe not, and go, huh, okay, so you slept crappy on both nights, you did the heavy squats one day and not the other day, okay, so this initial drop, probably from the heavy squats. So you're kind of constantly kind of running these n equals one little experiments so what i do with clients then is i'll do some type of intervention all right so let's try and work on you going to bed 20 minutes earlier and then i'll track that okay did you actually go to bed 20 minutes earlier oh you did okay oh over you know a week Mm, hrv is kind of trending up a little bit um the downside is it's not you can never really determine why you can just kind of determine where you're at But I would argue knowing where you're at is probably more useful, right? Because if your number is tanking, it's showing that you are becoming more and more stressful. I would want to know that and I would try to do something in order to change that. Whether that's training, sleep, nutrition, uh, something like that. Because at some point, it's going to be really hard if you dig a super big hole to get out of it. Okay, so this is coming together nicely for me. So... Let's uh let's go back to simple here. So how does one yeah. measure it? Uh, I you know because when I was first hearing about this, there was these really expensive units. I think there was like, mm-hmm. uh, you know upwards of I know one was like ten. There was another one that's like eighteen. Yep. It was for like high level athleticism, and like the promise was to be like, all right, we're gonna be able to tell you when you should and shouldn't be training. Because um, I I kind of have a, a little bit of a you know, a different background, right? A kind of mm-hmm. performance enhancement and the clinical yeah. aspects. But this is where I learned about HRV. So to me, back then, it wasn't really approachable for my athletes or my or my patients yet. But nowadays, I, I think it's achievable through your phone. What do you, What are some ways that people are now measuring HRV? Uh, let's start off with the big ones, the, the big dogs. Are those units still out there? Are the people still using them? I don't even remember the names. Yeah, they're still out there. I mean, when I was at the University of Minnesota doing my studies, I started almost 10 years ago there looking at HRV. The system we had, which we bought used at that time, was about 10 grand. 
Um, the downside, of course, not in addition to the equipment cost, is the fact that you got to go into the lab and get the measurement. So it becomes very kind of prohibitive. Uh, so starting about four-ish, five-ish years ago, uh, one of the first companies to have one that runs through your phone uh, is a company called iFleet. So instead of Athlete, it's an I. Mm-hmm. And they came out with a phone app <clears throat> that does a time domain measurement and just gives you the 1 to 100 scale. So much more user-friendly because even with the lab, you got to take the measurements. you got to do a bunch of funky stuff with it. you got to run it through MATLAB. And so there's a bunch of other steps to get a, a number from it. And you drop those into Kubio, so it spits out tons of numbers. Um, so much more user-friendly. Um, they have about at least four studies that have been out now showing that it is accurate. You can use just your standard Bluetooth heart rate strap. Um, or they also have a finger sensor. Uh, both of those have been shown to be quite accurate. And for under 100 bucks, like a one-time cost, even less if you already have a Bluetooth low-energy heart rate strap, I think the app's like 9 bucks or something, um, you can just start running it yourself. So it makes it a lot more easy for people. Uh, the downside I will caution is because HRV is becoming more popular now, everyone and their brother is trying to make an HRV app. <laughs> and I was at dinner a couple of weeks ago we were talking about it, and one of the guys is like, oh, yeah, I got one of those on my phone. I was like, oh, well, that's pretty sweet. Can I see it? And I won't name what company it was, but uh, not very effective. <laughs> right, right. Jeez, uh, I can, uh, I it's like the uh, the iTunes store, right? You, know, you, yeah. you look up one app, one app and there's 40, 45 of them. <laughs> you know, Most yeah. of them garbage, but a couple good ones. So I guess you got to be careful. You said you mentioned iFleet. I- like athlete, but with an eye. I think there's a couple other ones. What other ones out yeah. there? Do you know a couple so, others? The other ones that I recommend people could use um, would be Elite HRV. Uh, Jason's a buddy of mine who runs that company. Uh, there's this pretty good. There's another one called HRV for training, and that one uses the camera app off of it. Um, most of the ones, in my opinion, other than that one that uses a camera app, are pretty worthless, <laughs> in my biased opinion. Um, I have run that one for quite a while, and I've had a couple of clients run it. Um, it does appear, just anecdotally, you know, and of a couple, to correlate with the other measurements. Um, I know Marco there is working on, you know, trying to get a reliability study published on that. Uh, as of this recording, it's not out yet. Um, but he's very knowledgeable, actually has a good background in both the mathematics and the physiology. And that's the hard part about the HRV is that you're kind of living in both worlds. You've got a lot of digital signal processing and stuff to make sure that you don't get errors and noise and all that kind of stuff. But you also have to understand physiology to make it useful also. So those are kind of be the, the three that I would recommend steering people towards. Um, there's another one from a company called Sweetbeats. Um, and I've used theirs. It's pretty good. The downside is that they do a lot of frequency-based analysis, which eh, I don't really think is that worthwhile and it just gets too confusing. Interesting. All right, cool. So HRV, heart rate variability, we know what it is, and you explained some of the science behind it. I mean, to kind of understand what the science says. Uh, you've even taught us some different ways to, to measure it. So I think I'm finally going to invest and p- pick one of those up. Uh, nice. So what's the process look like? Is this something I would be doing every morning? And then once I have that number, uh, what's it mean to me? How do I, Yeah. you know, so what do I do with this? What? Yeah, like so. Real world application. How's, how's yep. this going to go down? So the process is I have people just, if they're using the Bluetooth heart rate strap, just leave it next to their phone at night. You mm-hmm. can turn your phone off. So get up in the morning, 
you have to use the bathroom, by all means, walk to the bathroom, use the bathroom, because sitting there trying to hold it as you do the measurement, obviously going to cause you stress. <laughs> it's going to show up in the measurement. So, you know, run to the bathroom, come back. Most people will do the measurement seated. A handful of people who have like a crazy low heart rate may actually do it standing. So one of the big downfalls is if you do it laying down, because if you're especially more of an endurance athlete, you've got a huge amount of parasympathetic tone, right? So let's say your resting heart rate's 41 laying down. What happens is the rest of your stressors will not really show up in that measurement. But if we take you and we put you in a seated position, now the heart actually has to work a little bit harder because it's pumping against gravity. But the seated position is a constant. So if you watch your heart rate, if you put the heart rate strap on, you go from laying down to sitting up, you'll see it kind of all of a sudden go up, you'll see it overshoot, and you'll see it come back down and kind of even out. So once you sit up you know, and have everything on, you know, wait for around two-ish minutes or so for that to even out. Another tip is some of the climates can be quite dry. So a little bottle of nasal saline works really well. I just use that to wet the electrodes, put them on, start the app, make sure I've been sitting for about two minutes, and then I just hit start. There'll be a little thing on there that'll direct your breathing because we know that uh, changing your breathing will dramatically affect HRV. So we want that to be as constant as possible. So any constants that you run in a variability analysis will drop out, and then it'll give you a number. It'll say 1 to 100. For example, mine this morning was kind of crappy, a 61. And then on most of the apps, you can then report sort of qualitative measures. So how was my sleep the last 24 hours, energy, nutrition, training, things of that nature. Mm -hmm. And how I use it is HRV alone and by itself is relatively predictive for endurance performance. It is not that acutely predictive for strength and power. I used to get crazy emails, so I do once in a while now still, from people that are like, oh, my HRV was horrible today. I went and did, you know, max squats again. Oh, it was good. I got a PR. Ah. <laughs> um, and that can definitely happen. But you're not going to do that on a day in and day out basis without paying a huge cost. So I think if you're doing more strength and power exercises, looking at HRV as it's the cost on your nervous system for about the last 24 hours. So when you previously took the measurement. So that includes nutrition, sleep, training, you know, just your stress in general. And so I use that to determine training. Now you can combine that with heart rate and get a little bit better predictive capability. So today it was lower. So I just did some more volume based work. I cut the session a little bit shorter. I only did about 40 minutes. And historically, I know from looking at past data that that's probably pretty good. Um, and my average HRV has also lately been trending down a little bit. So the average is something you really want to look at because that's telling you about the cost of what you've been paying. So now if you're purposely trying to overreach or you're pushing really hard for, say, only a week and you know that it's dropping down and that you're going to have a taper or a deload, so you're pulling back the stimulus after that, you know, that's probably fine. But a lot of people are just unconscious of the sum of all the stresses on their system. And training is probably the easiest one for them to change. So I have people will drop down to maybe just a very light aerobic day instead. Um, heavier strength training in general will drop HRV. 
kind of old school, what I call dude bra bodybuilding type stuff in general is about neutral. And aerobic training is maybe neutral to maybe going up a little bit. So if you kind of go with that framework, you can then auto-regulate or adjust your training a little bit based on the HRV. So I don't typically do a lot of tapers. I don't typically do a lot of deloads unless it's a real advanced athlete. I want them to kind of auto-regulate on a day-by-day basis, keeping the quality of training as high as possible. And then we may add rest days. We may add a drop-down aerobic day or things of that nature so that we always know right about where we're at. So this is where I find HRV application interesting, the way you're describing it. Because when I've looked into auto-regulation training, um, I figured this would be the data point that I would use uh, at the beginning, Mm -hmm. as well as having some other measures during the workout. Uh, Do you know anything? Have you looked into auto-regulation training? Have you kind of? Yeah. Geez, would you, would you mind sharing? Uh, what, is, what is your insight on that? I know this is yeah. a, l- a little bit of a detour. Geez, we yeah, probably no, do no a whole worries. show just on that, but uh, what, is your, what, is, what are your thoughts on that, uh, Yeah, it's, Mike? I'm a huge fan of auto-regulatory training, and there's all sorts of different ways to do it. Um, so my preference is I use a daily HRV to mm-hmm. determine what sort of the cost of the summation of everything going on in their life is. Mm-hmm. And my goal is if their HRV is at a number, that we know is pretty good for them, right? So I had a client a while back. She had a very stressful um, position, and her resting HRV was in the 40s, very, very low. So in her case, we did a bunch of stuff to get her back up at least into the 60s before we did much with training. Hmm. But if you assume that you're in a good range, roughly on the 1 to 100 scale, 60 to 80, somewhere in there, you can use it as a guide the catch is, as I mentioned, it's not as good for acute performance. So, for example, if I have got someone who's a power lifter and we're trying to get them to peak for a meet on a specific day at a specific time, we kind of run the same programs that they've done in the past. And then for their taper or their deload, I'll actually use HRV for that. So I know that we're probably going to be overreached a little bit. I know that their HRV during that time is going to drop, but I don't want it to drop too much. And then for the taper, if it's someone brand new, so I worked with a guy last year who ended up qualifying for Raw Nationals, and we left him two weeks to taper. He's like, oh, but I, I normally do like seven or eight days. And I'm like, okay. The downside is if you go too short, you may not have enough time to recover from all that stress that you put in when you purposely overreach them. If I go with two weeks, I can easily add in more volume or more specific work if they're ahead of schedule. But if I only had seven days and they're still not all the way back by the time of their meet, kind of hosed, right? So what you'll see is HRV will drop. You'll see it bottom out. You'll see it start coming back up. And then in a perfect world, right when it starts to drop again is when you would want the meet day. Because there's some research to show that for acute limit strength performance, you actually want to be a little bit sympathetic, right? You don't want to be highly parasympathetic because you're going to feel tired, crappy, and your performance at that day is going to be down. So you actually want to be a little bit on the sympathetic side. Um, So from that aspect, that works really well um, with that. Um, The other part is during the training session, you can have them log RPE, um, I like using heart rate because you can get it off of the watches and everything now. Yeah, of course. Really. So 
for a lot of clients, especially female clients who hate resting <laughs> between between sets, I don't know why they want to turn everything into circuit training, which has its place. Um, I put a watch on them and say, okay, you are not repeating your next set to your resting heart rate. Usually for most of my work with now is between 85 to 100. Why? Because I want them to be as recovered as possible before doing the next set. Because I want the quality of that stimulus to be as high as possible and I'll sacrifice time in order to do it because the adaptation is more hypertrophy and strength. Now if it's conditioning, you can do the same thing but your heart rate for them to repeat is going to be higher. Maybe 120, 130, maybe even 140 or higher. But the goal there is more of a conditioning, you know, anaerobic response. It's more of an aerobic response, actually, but gets into lactate and a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, but just by making that one change, which I stole that from Cal Dietz, it's a biometric method, you ensure that the quality of work stays as high as possible. So mm -hmm. if you can't check their heart rate, check their rep count. So if I said, all right, we're doing dumbbell bench press, and I want you in this six to eight rep range, and you look at their notes, they're like seven reps, seven reps, four reps. Like, well, what happened there? Oh, you know, I was in a hurry and I didn't rest long enough. Oh, okay. So if you have time, rest a little bit longer. So I'd rather see seven, 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 even if that resting period almost doubled in time, right? Because it, it never made any sense to me when you look at training programs that and my students do this all the time and it just drives me bonkers. Okay. We're doing, you know, three sets of 10, you know, old school Delorme method, which there's a time and place for it. Sure. And you're going to rest 60 seconds between each one. Okay. Maybe between set one and two, that's, you know, probably more than enough. Maybe even too much. Between two and three, mm, maybe okay. We extend it to four or five sets. I can guarantee that for most people, you're going to need to rest longer between set four and five than one and two. So why would they all be 30 or 60 seconds? doesn't make any sense to me, right? So I'm a big fan of pushing out the rest period to ensure that the quality of work, the stimulus that you are taxing the body is one as specific as possible and as high quality as possible. So yeah, if so you auto-regulate that whole process, that makes it easier. We may have to have you back just to talk about auto-regulation training because I'm really fascinated by it. But uh, I mean, to me, it's such a uh, you know, training or uh, trying to get a positive physiological response, which is really what training is, is, um, so individual so you kind of look at all yeah, these yes. old this all this old dogma being like you know how much rest is appropriate and i think i just saw some recent research that kind of spoke to uh you know if you're doing uh more endurance type training you can do shorter rest periods and if you want mm -hmm. or, or hypertrophy training or strength training basically saying that at the end of the day the the new research is showing that maybe longer rest periods is appropriate for all of them even the volume training where they would say you can get away with shorter rest periods so uh but if but if you go to auto regulation training then you kind of throw that out the window and say well i'm actually only going to be um going by the data of my own physiology which again seems like the most appropriate response if we bring it back to clinical care it's almost like being like uh your patients never read the book about how they're supposed to be sick, you know, it's like mm -hmm. they're going to be sick on their individually, uh, the way their own physiology wants to respond. And they, they, they didn't read uh, Gray's Anatomy, right? So oh, yeah. you, have to, you have to be able to respond uh, to your own training individually and be able to respond to your own patient's individual physiology as well. So that's why I really find auto-regulation training. Yeah. And that's why so, I love HRV, right? Because yeah, yeah. some people I had, you know, a, a guy who qualified for raw nationals, Man, he could do a lot of strength-based stuff, and he had a lot of outside stressors in his life, mm -hmm. and he did pretty good. 
you know, I had another guy who was a natural bodybuilder, physique athlete. You put him on two days of strength work a week and he was a strong dude. It would crush him. But he could do volume work of 30. Oh, Mike, I think I'm losing you here. Thousand pounds of volume, five, six days a week. Hold actually on, what, cutting what, for a show. I lost you no for problem. A there. What, what could he do, Mike? So it, again, it goes back to. That's okay. Um, so he was doing like thirty, forty thousand pounds of volume in the gym, you know, about five days a week on reduced calories. You know, which isn't a huge amount of volume to be in that state to do it day in and day out. Um, and his HRV was pretty much neutral. You know, where that type of volume for most people would crush them. So again, the, the stimulus and how they respond to it makes a big difference. So I'm more interested in what stimulus do I need to give them, which is based on their goals, what I want them to adapt to. And then HRV will give me an idea of the cost that they are paying to do that, which allows me to adjust better for their physiology. Hey, so let's, uh, I'm going to take a little turn here. Let's talk about yeah. how somebody could use HRV in the clinical world, right? A lot of our, our mm -hmm. listeners are... Uh, you know, medical doctors, physical therapists, uh, osteopaths. Um, we have some coaches, but uh, how does how does this work in the healthcare setting? Does it does it fit? Does it matter? Should we be applying it, should, or should we just be happy that we have some data? I mean, that's kind of the stance I take on it. But I wanted to have more of understanding before I implemented something like this. What, what's your stance on it? Yeah, my biased thought is I think it's super useful because things that if you just Think about if you grab the average person off the street, and I've got some pretty heavy eye issues I'm working through, and said, you know, do this type of eye movement and ask them and go, is that stressful? They'd be like, no, you just did this little gaze stability thing or whatever test you're doing. That looks pretty easy. Mm -hmm. Not stressful at all. To my nervous system, very stressful. <laughs> <laughs> um, and again, it goes back to an individual. Um, so I worked with a, a carry guy here um, working on some vision stuff. Super cool, awesome dude, very good, cool stuff. But I had to be very careful when I was doing the drills because even though they were simple and we had to actually have me laying down, I'm you know staring at these dots on the ceiling. I actually had my wife move my head because physically moving my head was, was too much stress for me. Mm -hmm. And even then I had to be very careful how often I did them because it would just tank my HRV and I would just feel really tired, just blech. This kind of horrible. Um, again, not that the drills are bad or anything like that. It's just that if you look at that and you saw me doing these things, you're like, you're laying down on the floor and someone's moving your head for you. There's no way that that's that stressful. But to my nervous system, it was. So I think by knowing you know some of the drills that you give people and then having them monitor that, you can then kind of adjust them and have a better idea. Okay, you know maybe I can progress this one a little bit more aggressively. Everything seems to be good. Stress level is good. Yeah, maybe I got to pull this one back a little bit. Maybe go every other day or whatever so that I'm not overstressing that particular person because each person has a different response. Sure. So let's say, would it be fair to say that maybe we could envision a world where we could use a tool and a data point like HRV? Uh, you know, even on a daily basis or how often you're seeing your patients. I know some, some of our docs are seeing patients, you know, maybe once every couple of days. Uh, mm -hmm. Some of our docs are seeing them for five, seven days at a time when they're doing yeah. clinical intensives, which is a, a model that I, I actually prefer. Um, but could we use this data point to find out if what we're doing for a patient, even though it may be appropriate for that patient's physiology, 
we could get, use it as a gauge to find out how much work we can do. So in the intensives model, yes. we're trying to have we're trying to use um, repetition as opposed to intensity to create a positive physiological change. Now the goal is to work within the patient's metabolic capability. If mm -hmm. you start exceeding that patient's metabolic capability, I would uh, theorize that we would see a, a decrease uh, in that number that the HRV data point would be affording us. Uh, does that seem like a, a good model to be using this in? Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. And, you know, another thing to look at too is if you can get a baseline. So let's say, you know, a person's going to fly down and spend five days with you and do some super intensive stuff. Mm -hmm. You're a busy person. They can't get in the schedule for three months. Well, let's say they've got some HRV and they start measuring it. If it were me, I would make sure that their HRV is probably higher than where they started or up to a very good level. So in theory, if they're down there and it's a little bit more stressful, they have a greater capacity or bigger buffer zone to kind of absorb that stress. This is beautiful. So you're saying, hey, if the person's scheduling to do a, a week uh, of care with us in an intensive format because they've been suffering for years and they, they finally want to, you know, they can't do the, the high intensity, so we'll do the repetition is another way to create that uh, plasticity. Mm -hmm. um, you'd say, hey, let's, let's start working on their HRV Let's get that data even before. Otherwise, you could they could walk in not even be able to handle what what looks like a simple drill, right? I mean, you said that story about you know, yeah. your wife having to move your head now, but again, that's individual to you. What sh what we should be able to do, and what maybe I could do or somebody else could do easily, your nervous system may not be able to handle. But that's why you're doing that particular drill. So again, to exceed not to exceed the patient's metabolic capacity. But but I love what you said about measuring it even beforehand. You want to know what they're walking in with, their their capacity, you know, maybe a couple weeks before or maybe months more, the mm -hmm. more data, the better, but then know how much capacity they have on day one. So maybe the first measurement shouldn't stop, shouldn't start on that first visit when you do that intake exam. So, I mean, just you sharing that was, yeah. was awesome. You actually had me excited about using uh, HRV. Yeah. So in that, ex that example, real quick, I would sure. say they would measure their HRV in the morning baseline when they get up. So you would know their measurements over like the past three months. Perfect world, they would maybe do some things to try to push them up a little bit before they get there. So mm -hmm. I personally like having my HRV a little bit higher before I'm going to travel and speak and do things that I know are generally a little bit more stressful. Yeah. Um, and that's helpful. And the last thing too is that I've done some other interventions, uh, very similar, again, kind of eye-based exercises and seeing my HRV go up by maybe 10 to 15 points and stay there for like two, three, four days, hmm. right? Because if you, so you think about vision and just in general, that if it's off, right, you've got a pretty high stressor every time their eyes are open. If you can change that, right, and take that stressor that occurs, you know, exclude sleeping 16 hours a day and make it so that it's less stressful on them, in theory, you should see a bump in their HRV, and that's what I've seen in my case also. So it can give you an indication of, I've got a little bit better drill, the cost is very low, and wow, their nervous system really likes that, and I've reduced sort of their overall systemic stress on their system. 
Awesome. You know what? I, I'm uh, I'm actually I'm excited about applying this. Hey, so I'm going to take a, another little turn because I know we're running yeah. out of time. But uh, you are speaking at the ISCN, the International Symposium in Clinical yes. Science. Congratulations for, for being put on that roster. It's a, it's a, they have incredible speakers there. Uh, last year was incredible. To see your name added to this year is uh, makes me very happy because you're a good friend of mine. So to see Thank you on you. stage I'm is very excited. Me, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just very proud of you. Um, what are you talking about? Can you at least share that with us? You don't have to tell us everything, but uh, what's your topic? What are you talking about this year? Yeah. So on the metabolism side, I'm speaking about a concept called metabolic flexibility, which in very short order is how well your body can use fat for energy and how well it can use carbohydrates and that those have very specific tasks that they should be used for. And then how well can you switch back and forth? And then if you throw HRV into the mix, Maybe you've got someone who can't use fat as well as they should under low-intensity exercise. So maybe do things like fasting or reduce carbohydrates or other things to try to get that fatty acid side to increase. Mm -hmm. If you start exceeding the stress level of their body, you'll see a change in their baseline of HRV also. Oh, man. So this is, this is, this is awesome. So you're talking about uh, metabolism. Uh, being able to do, use different fuel sources and you're even maybe mixing some HRV as a way to kind of uh, see how you're progressing along that. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, so oh, it's just like a stimulus, right? Just like weight training, right? If I, if I tell you tomorrow, if you're just eating every two to three hours and say, hey, hey man, hey doc, don't eat for 24 hours, you will increase your body's ability to use fat, mm -hmm. but at what cost, right? right so if right. that's an extremely high cost, okay, that's too much of a stimulus for that person. Yeah, maybe just push out breakfast an hour or two, right? So again, you can then customize it more to each individual with, you know, equipment that you don't have to pull them into a lab and run a metabolic cart and a bunch of other stuff. Sure. Wow. This, I can't wait for your presentation, man. I, I am pumped up. Uh, and I was pumped up for the event beforehand, but the, and to see you, but in the, hearing this topic, this is, this is going to be killer. So uh, congratulations then again for uh, being appointed there. Yeah. And being a Thank you guys very much for having me. I'm no, very no. excited. All right. And uh, hey, listen, Mike, uh, Dr. Elson, we got we got to get wrap it up here. But if people want to connect with you or learn more about you, where can they find you? Sure. Uh, two ways. They can just go to my website, which is just www.miketnelson, M-I-K-E-T as in Tom, N-E-L-S-O-N.com. Mm -hmm. Or they can just email me at drmike at miketnelson.com. And the subject line, just put uh, I-S-C-N. Awesome. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you again for coming on the show, sharing this information. We're going to have to have you back again, uh, I think maybe after your uh, ICN presentation, which happens October 7th, 8th, and 9th in Orlando, Florida. After that, I'd like to have you back on. Maybe we'll talk about the autoregulation training, which I think was really cool, and a little yeah. bit about metabolic flexibility. And, you know, uh, you are appointed to the panel that is contributing to a, a very special project for the Carrick Institute that they'll be launching in 2017. So we definitely have to have you back uh, as we start unveiling some of that, uh, unveiling some of that. So thank you again for your time, uh, Dr. Nelson, and we will have you back for sure if you'll join us. Oh, of course, anytime. I really appreciate it. And thanks for all the awesome questions too. It's uh, made it pretty easy. <laughs> <laughs> you, you got it. All right, have a great day. We'll catch you next time. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to make any suggestions for any future podcast topics, please visit the Contact Us page on carrickinstitute.com.